You are listening to a message from The Political Pastor. Each week, The Political Pastor expounds the Word of God to his local congregation. These messages are made available to you in podcast on thepoliticalpastor.com as well as other popular podcast platforms. Visit thepoliticalpastor.com and click on the podcast link at the top to find our full listing of podcasts. Every person is either a friend or a foe of Jesus Christ. Some may not be recognized as such by us, but that does not change the truth. Jesus points us to those two sides in our text. Which side are you on? Join us in Mark chapter 9, verses 38 through 41, as the pastor delivers the sermon, Two Sides. Chapter number 9, and we'll begin our reading in verse number 38 this morning. You know, in ancient days, a person may have to identify themselves as being friend or foe, and in Today's world, we have this identification system for flying objects designed for command and control. It uses a transponder that listens for an interrogation signal and then sends a response that identifies the broadcaster. We call them IFF systems. Some of you here know what that means, right? Identify, friend, or foe. IFF systems usually use radar frequencies, and I'm taking this from Wikipedia, all right, so I'm sure this is a lot of authority here, but I think it's pretty accurate. But other electromagnetic frequencies, radio or infrared, may be used. It enables military and civilian air traffic control interrogation systems to identify aircraft, vehicles, or forces as friendly as opposed to neutral or hostile, and to determine their bearing and range from the interrogator. IFF is used by both military and civilian aircraft. It was first developed during World War II with the arrival of radar and several friendly fire incidents that had occurred. IFF can only positively identify friendly aircraft or other forces. And if you can't identify an object as friend or foe, we've seen some of those in the news lately, haven't we? They're not identified, they're unidentified flying objects, right? Not necessarily aliens, it just means we haven't identified them for what they are and whether they are friendly or not. It's just it has not been identified. You know, every person, though, in this world is either a friend or a foe of Jesus Christ. There are two sides. Count them. One, two. You are for or against. You're with him or you're without him. Now, some may not be recognized as such by us, but that doesn't change the truth. And Jesus points us to those two sides in our text today. So Mark chapter 9, look with me beginning in verse number 38. And John answered him saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name. And he followeth not us, and we forbade him, because he followeth not us. But Jesus said, Forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part. For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. The grass withers 
The flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Now, last week, we saw the debate among the disciples concerning who among them should be what? The greatest, right? They debated who would be the greatest. And we dealt with that issue of pride that we must kill in our lives. And we saw how Jesus used the illustration of a small child. And he makes this statement, just to remind you from verse 37. Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me receiveth not me, but him that sent me. So now here, Jesus, as we left off last week, has told his disciples something very important regarding those who receive him and those who reject him. And he said, those who receive one such as this child, they receive me, and if they receive me, they receive the Father. That's one side, right? If you reject, you would be the other side. Now, Jesus gives this illustration of the child, and we saw from Matthew's gospel that he is talking indeed about um, young believers here as well, not just physically children, but those who are infants in the faith. Those who don't have a whole lot to give yet. Those who need a lot of time and attention and effort from other believers. The ones who receive those. As you receive them, you're receiving Christ. You're receiving one of his. And so this prompts a response from John. We see this in our text in verse 38. And John answered him saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not us, and we forbade him because he followeth not us. Now it would be easy to kind of miss this as you look at this passage here that we read this morning because it seems like it's just thrown in in the middle of a conversation because next week we'll find where Jesus kind of picks up where he left off with that illustration of a child and receiving them. But it's really not. John is associating this message with something he's seen and done. He's relating it to something that they've experienced, and now he's bringing this issue to Jesus' attention. Now, John's statement there in verse 38 demonstrates both the arrogance and the division that even when we may mean well, that they still exist in our churches today. There's a lot of arrogance and a lot of division that exists, much as what John portrays there in verse 38. Now, in our text, though, here today, Jesus is going to clarify. There really are two sides. There are those who are building the kingdom and those who are opposing the kingdom. And I kind of want to start off with a word of caution, though, this morning, because we have these unity movements that go on in our churches and I want to speak about that just for a moment before I get further into the text today it's kind of this idea that there really should be no distinctions there should be no doctrinal differences there should be no denominations we all just all come together as believers and all be one and hold hands and sing kumbaya and just all get along and there be no distinction between us well that movement in and of itself becomes problematic as well. So I don't want us to misunderstand the text and think that in any way this is what Jesus is indicating, that we just put aside all differences and we all be one church, we all worship together exactly the same way with no distinctions between us. There is a need for doctrine, that just means teaching, and specific teaching. 
there is a need for distinctions. In fact, the word of God is clear about us protecting against false teachings in our church. So everyone who names the name of Christ, though they may mean well, they're not always teaching and preaching truth. You understand that? Sometimes they are misled. Sometimes they are misguided. Sometimes they will mislead others. So Jesus is not saying, have no distinctions, don't correct any of the false teachings. But you know, some go beyond this to the point of really almost hating other believers who are part of a different denomination or who disagree with them on some issue that's not a salvific issue. I mean, I've seen the hostility at times. Again, we're not talking about all meeting together in the same place. There may be distinctions. We may have differences in teachings. We may worship in different buildings and still be the church. But it's almost that hatred of those who don't see things exactly as we see them on every issue. Issues like eschatology or study the end times. We've been talking about that some lately. Baptizing infants. Some of you are cringing when I say some of these things. You know, psalm singing and so forth. There are all of these matters in the church which actually your stance on that does not necessarily determine your salvation or someone else's. Does it mean that it's not important? No, it's important. Does it not mean that it will make a difference in how you live your life and how you carry out your theology? Absolutely it will. It's important. We should discuss it. We should understand it. It's okay to have differences on these things. But it's that hatred that we seem to develop for those who disagree with us on those subjects, which in the end don't make a difference in our salvation. Which in the end are other brothers and sisters in Christ who are still redeemed, who are still part of the kingdom, who are still going to live forever with Christ, even if they are a little mixed up on some things in their theology and in their teaching. If a person comes to Christ after hearing the word of God from a Calvinist, why would an Arminian be upset? What I'm trying to propose to you are these differences that we have within the church, within the body of Christ. And why is it that we would become angered or upset if someone successfully carries out a good work for the Lord and God is glorified Why would we be envious? Why would we be jealous? Why would we be upset about those things? So the ditches that we run into are either total inclusivity or total exclusivity within the church. However, the gospel itself, you do understand, is quite exclusive. You either believe or you don't believe the gospel. You are a child of God or you're a child of the devil. You're for him or against him. There are two sides. And that's what we're going to look at from the word of God this morning are these two sides. Notice with me, first of all, in verse 38, that you're either in Christ or in opposition to Christ. In Christ or in opposition to Christ. Again, John answers him saying, verse 38, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not us, and we forbade him, because he followeth not us. 
So here is John associating the teaching that Jesus has just given them about who would be the greatest using the illustration of a child and then telling them it's important how they receive a child because they're receiving Christ. And John associates that teaching now with an event that he's experienced. And he seems to be seeking Christ's approval for, for his actions. He doesn't necessarily ask it in the form of a question, but it's as if John is saying, oh, yeah, I get it, Jesus. I hear what you're saying. There was this thing that happened a while back that I've been meaning to tell you about. What do you think? Did we do the right thing or not? There was this man who was casting out devils in your name. And we told him to stop because he's not one of us. Did we do the right thing? Is this what you're talking about, Jesus? And this is much of the source of issues in our churches today. We ask God to bless what we're doing rather than ask him what we should be doing. You see, this is an afterthought for John. He associates it with his teaching, but it's as if he's saying, Jesus, can you put your stamp of approval on what we've done? We forbade this guy to keep casting out devils in your name because he wasn't one of us. You do agree with us, right? You're going to bless what we're doing, right? How much better would it have been had they consulted with Jesus about their actions ahead of time? You see, if we do what he bids us to do, it will be blessed. But so many of our churches today are built upon these programs and ideas and events and things that we dream up and we come up with. And then we say we're doing in the name of the Lord. And then we say, God, please bless all of our efforts. Where they're saying, God, what would you have us to do? And we understand what God would have us to do. How many of us understand he will bless what he tells us to do? Now, who was the person who asked the question? Well, it was John, one of those three who had been up on that Mount of Transfiguration with Christ. And he asked the question of Jesus or proposes this issue to Jesus. And he tells us that he saw or the disciples saw one casting out devils. Now, who was the one casting out the devils, casting out the demons? There have been a couple explanations proposed here. Some have said perhaps it was one of the 70. You remember when Jesus sent out the 70 disciples, and they did have success, by the way, in also casting out uh, demons. And so some have suggested perhaps it was one of those, though others suggested the language here indicates it wouldn't be any of those associated disciples. Some have said perhaps it was a converted disciple of John the Baptist that's now a follower of Christ. But the issue was it really didn't matter who this person was. It's not a matter of who the person was. What's at issue here is the work that he was doing and the name in which he was doing the work. He had done a legitimate work. Notice what John tells us he did, and there's no denying it, there's no questioning it, and there's no saying, well, he he made it appear this way. John states this very matter-of-factly. He says that this one that they saw was casting out demons in the name of Christ. There was a legitimate work that was actually occurring. This was taking place. 
he cast out devils. The Geneva Study Bible says God, who normally works through ordinary means, works also extraordinarily as often as it pleases him. But an extraordinary means is tested by the doctrine and the effects. In other words, God works through ordinary things that he put in process from the beginning of time, right? There are certain laws of nature, for example, that exist. Where'd they come from? God established those from the beginning. And so what happens? The earth rotates on on its axis, right? The sun comes up. The sun goes down. This happens every day, right? We know this uh, approximately 24 hours a day, 365 times a year. All these things that occur naturally over and over again by ordinary means, the things that God created. But sometimes God steps in, doesn't he? And sometimes God does a miraculous work. Something very different. Something outside the ordinary and normal order of nature. And God steps in with the miraculous. And this is an occasion where he is doing that. And so we see these demons being cast out. But there's always a test to this. Anytime we see something out of the ordinary of what God's created, something supernatural, miraculous in nature, it is to be tested and tried according to his word. We look at it by doctrine, we look at it by effect, and when we look at what this man was doing, there's no denying he had actually been casting out demons in the name of Christ. Now, why is that important? Well, Jesus had been accused of casting out demons himself by the name of Belial. Remember that? He was casting out demons. He was accused of casting them out in the name of Satan. And Jesus says, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a house is divided against itself, it can't stand. And so the end conclusion is that Christ was not doing this in the name or the power of Satan. Because Satan would not cast out Satan, right? And so if this man was actually casting out demons, this was not a demonic force at work in him. This was not a satanic event. I'm saying all that to establish this, to understand this was not some magic thing happening. This was not some sleight of hand. This was not uh, some circus uh, sideshow here. This was a legitimate act of God from an actual follower of Christ. He was doing it in the name of Christ. Now, we test these works just like we test prophets. There was a clear test in the Old Testament for a prophet. You know what it was? If he says something is going to come to pass and it doesn't, you know what that tells you? He's not a real prophet. He's a false prophet. You know what you do with a false prophet? They're put to death. So there was a test for what was being said. There's a test... For what I preach from this pulpit, many of you are holding it right there in your lap. There's a test. If it contradicts with what God's word says, it's not real, it's not authentic, it's not true, it's not to be heeded. And so there are those who come along with later revelations, right? Later books. And they claim 
that they have new revelation. They claim they have a new word. They claim it's of God. Perhaps even they call it a testimony of Jesus Christ. But we have to put it to the test. Is it of God? Was it from him? Does it contradict the rest of his word? Because God cannot contradict himself. God does not say one thing in his word to give a later revelation that is in conflict with his original revelation. Do you understand? We test those words. We test those works. And it is perfectly good and right to do so. Now, even now, there's a lot of buzz going on about something happening in Kentucky, up at Asbury, that university there, and the revival, at least what it's labeled, that's taking place there. And there's lots of questions and lots of discussion amongst Christendom about what is happening there. Is it real? Is it not? Is it right? Is it wrong? And some who have even questioned it, have been slammed by others saying, well, you shouldn't question what's going on up there. Well, not so. Not so. You see, many don't even understand what revival actually is. And so we ask ourselves a few questions of things like what's happening at Asbury and other universities. We have to ask, is the gospel of Jesus Christ being proclaimed? I'm not asking, are we just praying or just singing? I'm saying, is the gospel being proclaimed? Is the good news being proclaimed? Because it's the word of God which transforms hearts. Are sinners repenting? Now, I'm not going to give you all the answers to this. I'm going to let you wrestle with some of this. But let me give you an example, though. If we can have a person who's a member of the LGBTQ community lead us in so-called worship, And we call that revival. If it's revival, there will be repentance, not acceptance of sin, especially leading a so-called revival. Do you understand? So we have to measure these things, right? Does it mean that every work in such a revival is not legitimate? Not necessarily so, but these are some tests. Is the focus on Christ Or is the focus on the Holy Spirit? You see, oftentimes in some of these events, we find the focus turned toward the Holy Spirit. The filling of the Holy Spirit, a renewal of the Holy Spirit, a move of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And understand from Scripture, the Holy Spirit does not exist to bring glory to himself. He points us to Christ. And if our revival is all about the Holy Spirit and not about Christ and his redemptive work, then we have to ask what's happening in our revival. It might be an emotional thing. It might be an experience. There might be some good that comes out of it. Not saying there wouldn't be. But be careful of the definitions we give these things. Put it to the test. Now, it doesn't mean if this is not a true revival at Asbury or some of our other universities that those people aren't in Christ. That's not what we're saying. If it's not truly a revival, it doesn't mean that those people there aren't in Christ. But it is possible, as we said earlier, to be in Christ and be in error. 
But let's say one is truly converted out of this event. Let's say we see people turn to Christ as a result of what's happening at Asbury or any of our other universities. In that case, we should not become envious or jealous or even reject the authenticity of that conversion if true fruit of repentance exists. If God receives glory from the conversion of a sinner through this event, then give glory to God. This work that this man did in verse 38 was accomplished in Christ's name and indicates the person was in Christ. Though notice here, he was not in the in group. (laughs) The disciple said, he's not one of us. He's doing this in your name, but he's not part of our little group. So we told him to stop. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 30, the one who is not with me is against me, and the one who does not gather with me scatters. In other words, it's one of two things. You're on one of two sides. You're either with me or you're against me. You're either sowing with me, or rather you're gathering with me, or you're scattering away against me. You're working with me or against me. One or the other, two sides. You see, one is either in Christ, or that one is in opposition to Christ. And we all are on one side or the other. In Ephesians chapter 2, I would ask you to turn to this passage with me. In Ephesians chapter number 2, in verse number 1, Paul gives us basically two, two states that we could be in. He states it a different way, as being either alive or dead. Alive would be with Christ. Dead would be without Christ. With Christ would be in his righteousness. Without Christ would be in our sin. Ephesians chapter 2 verse number 1 says, And you hath he quickened or made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. So now before we go on, notice what the two categories are, right? Alive is one category, dead in your trespasses and sins, that's the other. You're in one of those. Verse 2, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation or our lifestyle in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, And were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. That's the category that Paul says all of us were in at one time. That's the side that all of us were on at some point. But look at verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us or made us alive together with Christ, By grace you're saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Then the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. 
There was nothing we could do, by the way, to move from one side to the other side. It was God who did the work. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Paul tells us that God was rich in his mercy and rich in his love toward us. And even when we were dead in our sins, he made us alive together with Christ. He did it, he says, by grace. And it's by that grace that we are saved. It is his gift of grace. It is his gift of faith. So that we're no longer dead. But we are alive in Christ. Now remember, Paul describes in those earlier verses the way that we used to live. The way that we used to walk outside of Christ. Before he made us alive, we were children of wrath. Before he made us alive, we walked according to the ways of the world. According to the ways of the flesh. According to the ways of the evil one. That's who we were. That's how we lived. We are either in Christ or in opposition to him. So we see that one is in Christ or in opposition to Christ, that there are two sides. But secondly, I want you to notice another thing back from our text there in the book of Mark. Not only we're in Christ or in opposition to Christ, but also we either speak Christ or we speak against Christ. We speak Christ or speak against Christ. In Mark chapter 9, verse 39, But Jesus said, Forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. So in conclusion, Jesus tells them, well, yes, you did wrong. (laughs) You messed up. You shouldn't have forbid him to do what he was doing because truly a miracle had occurred. Truly it was done in Christ's name. Truly it was done for his glory and not for self. There are many works that we as individuals, that we as churches, Many works that we do that are designed to build up our own kingdoms. You understand what I mean by that? They're designed to bring glory to self. They're designed to bring glory to our churches. They're designed to build us up, to lift us up, to glorify ourselves. Sometimes we even do this in the name of serving God. Oh, we're doing this for him. Are we really? Are we really? This was not one of those occasions where someone was doing something for their own glory. This man was not looking to gain anything by what he was doing. You know, it's not like Simon the sorcerer, you know, who just wanted this power of the spirit so he could get gain from it. Right and have success from it. No, this was someone truly doing this in the name of Christ for his glory. Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter 1. This is one other passage I would ask you to turn to. Philippians chapter number 1. Because what Jesus is saying in the end... Jesus is saying, why are you so upset? Why are you so worried about this? My name was proclaimed. I was preached. I was glorified. 
Paul in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 12, now he is in prison. He's in chains as he writes. And some had taken opportunity while Paul was in chains to become a little more bold themselves and take that opportunity to rise up in their own preaching and ministries. But in verse 12, Paul says, But I would, you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather than the furtherance of the gospel. In other words, everything that's happened to me, you think it's bad, but really God's using this to accomplish his purpose. Verse 13, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. I had opportunity I wouldn't have otherwise. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife. And some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. They're taking advantage of me being here. They're taking advantage of my being in chains. They're trying to gain something for themselves. But the point is, they were preaching Christ, even though they were preaching Christ with wrong motives. So he's saying the gospel's being preached, some with the right motive, some with the wrong motive, but they're preaching Christ. We're not talking about even a false message necessarily. We're talking about Christ being preached. Then look at what he says in verse 17. But the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. (laughs) Paul says in the end... There are some people out there doing things with the wrong motives. Some are doing with the right motives. But whether they have the right motive or wrong motive, they're preaching Christ. And I'm going to rejoice in that. Because Christ is being proclaimed. I've seen instances of this where maybe someone accepts Christ under a certain ministry. And then that pastor maybe falls or does something to disappoint or maybe even errs from the faith or maybe goes into some other off-the-wall thing. And that person has this question then about what happened in their life or about the decision they're made. How many of you understand your decision is not linked to a person other than Jesus Christ? Your salvation is not linked to who the preacher was. God can speak through anything. Including in scripture we've seen he even uses a donkey. And some might say some of us preachers fall in that category. You know, God can use even the donkey to proclaim his word. It's about the power of his word and the power of Christ to transform. And regardless of who the mouthpiece is, if it's the truth of God's word, God's word is powerful enough to save regardless of who is speaking the word. Paul says, either way Christ is being proclaimed I'm going to rejoice in that. Now, back in Mark 9, Jesus tells his disciples, this man who has done this miracle in my name, he says that he can lightly speak evil of me, meaning he, he won't quickly or soon speak the opposite of me. doesn't mean this man never would turn, but think about it. If someone was truly in the place that this man was in, with a heart for Christ, doing work in the name of Christ, for the glory of Christ. How many of you think tomorrow morning he's going to get up and speak against Christ? 
And that's the point Jesus is making. Can we rejoice in Christ's work even if we're not the ones seeing the fruit? Our jealousy, our envy breaks forth sometimes like the disciples who are debating on their journey who is the greatest. Are we somehow less fulfilled when God accomplishes his purposes through someone else? Are we any less because God uses someone else? Pray that he uses us, but rejoice in whoever it is that he uses. Whether someone else in our church or from a different church or denomination, it's about the glory of God not our glory. So you speak Christ or you speak against Christ. Two sides. But thirdly, notice, you're either against Christ's disciples or you're with Christ's disciples. In verse 40, notice Jesus' response. For he that is not against us is on our part. What does he mean by on our part? He means on our side or for us. And it's interesting the language that's used here because we could also say it's for you. Jesus has used this similar statement where he says against me and here he says against you or for you and he's identifying himself with his disciples. His people. If they're not against us, me, Christ, if they're not against you, my people, we're one. If they're not against us, you, me, they're for us. Two sides. If you are with him, you are his disciples. You see, you can't love Christ and hate his disciples. You can't love Christ and hate the church. You, you can't love Christ and hate his bride. The kingdom is filled with very different people. There's probably some from some churches that you would never expect who are actually part of the kingdom of God. There's people you're going to see in eternity you never thought would be there. Because they didn't go to the same place you went. They weren't in the same groups you were in. They may have been mixed up about a few things, but they had it right about Christ. You know, there's times when we can join together, when we can work together. They may be getting things wrong, but maybe there's times when we can join. Let me give you an example. There have been many times when evangelicals and Catholics have joined together to fight against the evils of abortion in our nation. How many of you think that's a good thing? One group or the other may have some things really mixed up, but they've got it right concerning what God says about life. And in those cases, do we reject the work of the one who disagrees with us in so many things, even though they're accomplishing the work of God in this arena? That would be the question. There are things that we can learn from Anglicans and Lutherans 
and others. Again, not that doctrine doesn't matter because it does. But when we can join in a cause for the glory of Christ, by all means, let's work together and not destroy one another in that effort. Now, I get this sometimes. People who don't agree with my tactics. They agree with me in principle. They agree with me in what the word says, but they just don't like the way you go about living it out. They don't like the way you go about putting it into effect. Oh, yeah, yeah, we agree with you, you know, about that LGBTQIA plus community. But, but to go out there and actually preach to them, now that's, that's, you know, that's a little hateful. and that's, I don't know if I can go along with that, right? Or to actually enact some kind of legislation, I, I don't know that I can go along with that. I mean, I, I agree with you. We believe the same thing. I just don't like your tactics. And then what happens is sometimes we begin to become crucified by those who just don't like our tactics, right? We devour ourselves. The body of Christ trying to eat itself up. Stephen Wolfe, in his book, Christian Nationalism, talks about a couple groups of people. He talks about the approved right versus the conservative right. And what he's talking about in this is how on the left, and I know I'm getting really political, but I don't care. All right. So regardless of where you stand, there's still a principle here that applies. He's talking about how the far left will tolerate an approved right. Like, for example, there's a so-called right-wing news company out there. They're really not that right-wing, but they call themselves conservative on the right. And they're accepted by those on the left. They'll let them exist. It's okay that they're out there. You know, we'll act like we don't get along sometimes, like members of Congress, right? We'll act like we get a, get along with them sometimes, and we'll act like sometimes that we don't. But really, they're okay because they're not a real threat to us. So they can stay out there. But then there's that further right. Now, we can't stand them. So what happens? The approved right is in conflict with the far right. Have you seen this happen? Have you seen this on display? And so the approved group can't deal with the far out group. And the infighting within parties and so forth starts, right? Well, that's what happens in Christianity. It's what happens in our church. There are some who want to be that squishy middle sometimes. And they don't like it that there are some who take it a little further than they like. A little stronger on some issues than they want. And so what do they do? Rather than join hands... In the efforts that they can stand together in, they seek to crucify and destroy that other group, don't they? It's normal. It's natural. It's the processes that we go through. It's like when we call that Christian preaching at that drag show. Unchristian. He's unloving. He's not like Christ, right? Have we forgotten who the enemy really is? Have we forgotten what we're really fighting against? We spend our time fighting one another rather than fighting the evil in our world. The pagans will call them unchristian because they're preaching at a drag event. 
But never let it be a disciple of Christ who forbids another disciple to stand outside an abortion clinic, stand outside a drag show, and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let it never be a disciple of Christ who forbids another one to do the work of Christ. You're against Christ's disciples or you're with Christ's disciples. Two sides. Here's the final thing. You're either by Christ for Christ or you're without Christ and without Christ's reward. Look at verse 41. For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. Either by Christ for Christ or you're without Christ and his reward. The giving of water here was really considered one of the smallest of acts that could be done. In fact, it would have been very common in this arid area in which they found themselves. It's very common to give another person a cup of cold water. I mean, this was just a menial task. This was not something you even thought much of. It was just common. It was normal. It was expected. It's just what you would do. Common decency, so to speak. It's a hot, dry area. You give someone who's hot and thirsty a cup of water. Not a lot of effort there, really. Not even a big deal. So what Christ is talking about here is some of the smallest, most menial tasks, one of the smallest acts you could do. But here he says, whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ. So it's a very small act. But here's the difference here. This cup of water is given in the name of Christ for the glory of Christ to Christ's people. Though it's a small thing done in his name for his glory, for his people, Jesus says, I won't forget it. Though it may seem small, they won't not lose their reward. The smallest act done in this way is not forgotten by Christ. Jesus said, as much as you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. Here's a question for reflection. Is your cause in life bigger than yourself? Is your cause in life bigger than you? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all things for who? Do all things for your glory? No. Do all things for the glory of God. Whatever it is your hand finds to do. You see, you can do nothing good if you aren't in him. You can do nothing to please him or gain his merit. Christ alone is worthy. And only when we are in Christ can we please God. By Christ, for Christ, or without Christ and his reward. Two sides. Which side are you on? Who has your allegiance? Whose side are you fighting with? Are you numbered with Christ? Has Christ saved you? Or will you by faith be saved? And there certainly finally is a word to the church here. Don't forget who we're fighting and who is truly on our side. Let's bow together for prayer.
Father, you're clear in your word today that we're in one of two camps. I pray for those who hear this message, who find themselves as children of wrath, living against you. People for whom Christ gave himself. We pray that you might draw them to yourself. By faith they may be saved. They might be numbered with yours. We pray for those lost in their sin today. We thank you, God, for your saving work. We thank you for what Christ did for us in redeeming us. We thank you for your grace. We are unworthy, unloving, and unable to do anything for ourselves. Now, God, forgive us today as your people. We spend our time fighting one another. And we forget the real fight that exists. God, may we stand in your name with your people for your glory. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by the political pastor from his home pulpit. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. From 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Be sure to follow The Political Pastor by visiting thepoliticalpastor.com. Click on the subscribe link at the top of the page and learn how to subscribe to us and our various social media feeds. If you would like to learn more about Jesus Christ and His salvation, please visit thepoliticalpastor.com. Click on contact at the top of the page and write to us. We welcome the opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ.